Aid and Abet, the podcast. The conviction to live outside the lines. Well, hey, Cassie, how's it going? Hey there, hi there, ho there. It is another stunning day here in the city of sales. You say stunning? Stunning. What did you think I, I said? I actually am not sure, but that's a lovely descriptor for anything, really. What makes it so I'm stunning? Saying just that. the fact that it's not raining? <laughs> well, no, I was just kind of telling a lie because... <laughs> oh, actually it's, a bit, actually, it's a bit shit. <laughs> it's, it's another rainy, drizzly, gray day outside, but I thought I would paint a more beautiful and optimistic picture for our audience. And I, just, well, I just knocked it straight on the ground. <laughs> this is what I love about our friendship. Very sorry. Tell me more about that. Why is it stunning? I lied. I'm going to need proof. (laughs) (laughs) Shit. Damn. Oh, man. No, it's a very gray, very wet, very damp day, but yeah, we're we're not dead. No. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) I mean, set the the bar real low. Um, So how were you at 4 a.m. today? Were you you sleeping? Were you thinking? Were you peeing? What was going on? (laughs) I I was thinking... Not peeing in bed, <laughs> which is a fantastic thing when you're 41. And the 4 a.m. thought that that hit me probably should have been gratitude for the not peeing in bed. Wow, this is really going <laughs> well this morning. The thought that hit me this morning was actually the idea that people talk about the the overnight success. And we talk about, you know, that person, they just, they just blew up overnight. They had the success that came about. And my business raccoon brain was like, yeah, it's a whole bunch of BS. We all know that. And then my mind went from there very quickly to the shift of, but actually there are things in life that I think can hit you one and done. I was having a lot of mentoring sessions yesterday with folks and I kept coming back to these stories about singular lines, singular things people had told me that seriously changed the course or course corrected my life in as far as my like mental health and my confidence went. And I was thinking specifically about this one line in speaking. And I remember I'd gone out to do this huge keynote in LA, like thousands and thousands of people. I was packing my pants beforehand, like scared to death, all of the like sweaty palms, breathing was crazy. And I did that mental thing where I'm like, I'm an athlete. This is excitement, not terror. And then the other part of my brain went, you're fucking terrified. And a person walked up next to me and was like, you look terrified. And I said, (laughs) I am. And they said, what are you afraid of? And I said, that I'm going to fuck it up. And they said, you know what? Every single person in that room wants you to win. They want to be entertained. They want to be engaged. They want to be educated. They want to laugh. They want to cry. Can you do those things? I said, yeah. And he was like, then go out there and get it, champ. And from that point on, my thought process around anything I've had to do in speaking in public, even in my own moments of like self-doubt, have been calmer because I'm like, that person wants me to win instead of thinking that person wants me to fail. So that was my 4 a.m. thought. Then I got up and I got my little morning energy drink, my pre-workout that I couldn't live without. 41-year-old woman with (laughs) knocky knees who needs a (laughs) pre-workout. 
before coffee. Uh, here we go. Man, I mean, I the, the the feeling of like before you walk out on stage starting to question your very self-worth. I mean, I don't know if you're like a professional storyteller or something, but that is a a pristine segue into today's episode. Um, oh, because today, did I just segue? Wow, you segued so hard. I don't even you didn't even realize you were doing it. But I was like, this girl, she's good. So today we're she's talking on about. Fire. You can start now. <laughs> we, <laughs> we are talking about a a piece that was written. It was actually written in February of 2021, and mm. it was written in the Harvard Business Review, and mm-hmm. it is a piece called Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome. It's by Rashika Tolshin and Jodi Ann Burry. And this is a piece that we both uh, independently read. Um, And the fact that it's, you know, a couple years old is, and we're still talking about it, is is testament to the power of this piece. It really changed the way I thought about imposter syndrome. It made me question a lot of things. So the first thing that I would say is that People should go read it if if you haven't already. There's a mm-hmm. it's, there's a, a a piece, an article that you can read. There's also a podcast episode with Brene Brown where she interviews them and they talk about it more. It's a fantastic piece. It's a fantastic podcast episode. We are not going to summarize what they've already spoken about because that seems a bit pointless to be fair. <laughs> but what we are going to talk about is how this piece and this reframing of imposter syndrome has impacted our lives and changed the way that we think about it in our professional lives, in our coaching, in our teaching, in our own work. Um, so the, the subtitle of the piece is, is, for many women, feeling like an outsider isn't an illusion. It's the result of systemic bias and exclusion. So to start with, imposter syndrome, just in case you somehow have not heard of this before, is loosely defined, this is from their piece, so I'm reading from the piece, is loosely defined as doubting your abilities and feeling like a fraud. It disproportionately affects high-achieving people who find it difficult to accept their accomplishments. Many question whether they are deserving of accolades. So it started with uh, imposter syndrome was called imposter phenomenon, and it was, mm. it was uh, coined by um, psychologists Pauline Rose Clance and Suzanne Emmis. I'm not sure if I'm saying her name right. Um, they developed this concept uh, in 1978. It was a founding study and it focused on high-achieving women who um, both Rashika and Jodi Ann point out it was a very slim cross-section of society. It was, you know, basically white, wealthy women. Um, but so the, the, the term has been around for a long time. So now that we've talked about what imposter syndrome is, before we get into the kind of nitty gritty of the systemic bias and exclusion that is is probably the more important conversation to have and is certainly the the, the point of um, Rashika and Jodi Ann's piece. First, I want to talk about, our, Cassie, you and my experiences of imposter syndrome. My first experience, I probably can't even remember because it's been part of my life for so long. It's just, it's just everything. It's baked into it's everything. It's everywhere. It's it. Yeah. But one of the experiences I still find now is that frequently when I walk into a gig as a bass player who's been a professional bass player for 20 years, often when I walk into a room, someone who is very well-meaning and is, is certainly I don't resent them personally for this, they will pretty much, not always, but often ask if I'm the merch girl, if I'm selling the merchandise <laughs> or if I'm the tour manager. Um, yeah. And... 
And it used to, at first I was like, what? No, I'm the bass player. And then it started to occur to me that they were just assuming that I was the merch girl or the tour manager because I was the, a girl. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of can't, I can't be too mad at those people because it's common that a band is all dudes and it's common that crew or, you know, administrative crew are women. So I get it. I get why there was that assumption. But whenever that happens, there's a moment where I'm like, I'm not, I don't fit in. I'm not what they think a bass player is going to be. Like it's, it's, I'm lacking because they mm. assume that I must, and not to disparage merch people because people that do merchandising on the road, they work fucking hard. <laughs> but just that when I walk into a gig, the assumption is that I must not be the performer. And that sucks. And that's probably my, probably my most current common experience of imposter syndrome. What about you? What, what are some times or what's our time that that happens for you now? Before we uh, segue to me, can we talk about <laughs> no, no, the moment no, no. where I knew <laughs> where I knew how much I was gonna love you and that you were gonna be my best like human on the planet? Can we tell this story? <laughs> this is the best story ever. This is so for everybody who doesn't know, Vanessa and I are a very modern elder millennial best friendship. We met on the interwebs, not only on the interwebs, but by sliding into DMs on the old Instagram. And it took us all of like 0. 0.0345 seconds to be like, oh, hey, sister soul. Uh, Vanessa and I had, she was in the States. Our um, borders were closed in New Zealand. I was in New Zealand. We'd done our flip-flop expatty thing. And were you playing, was it Americana Fest? It was Americana Fest, wasn't it? Yeah. In 2021. And... Mm -hmm there was a live stream of a show that Vanessa was going to do. Now, what, you're the band director. Is that what it's called? You're the band director. So Vanessa it's is band leader and musical director. Band yeah. leader. There you go. I'm just going to put them together. She's the band leader director. <laughs> there we are. She is the badass. Uh, this is the first time I was going to be kind of seeing her play, and this is a live stream out of Nashville. And I was like, sweet, I'll log on a little bit early um, and figured – the band before it just finished, they were going to turn off this live stream um, before Vanessa's gig started. The funny thing was is that the live stream at the venue did not end. It just kept going between shows. Well, at least the audio did. So I was kind of tippity-typing away, working on client stuff here in New Zealand, sitting on the floor in my lounge, and I hear this Kiwi voice in the background talking to a sound guy, hey, 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 um, we need to make sure that the sound's right. And the guy kind of just goes, yeah, 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 okay, whatever. Kind of kind of actually was just telling you to, to be in your place and be quiet, really. So my little ears perked up, and I was like, okay, what's going to happen here? And he kept, every time you called him back to you, he kept be, being dismissive until maybe like the third time you just stopped. And you said, excuse me, I can't see you because of the lights. Where are you? And the room went quiet. And he kind of went, oh, I'm over here. And you were like, what's your name? I can't remember. It's Steve-O. Let's call him Steve-O. And you said, Steve-O, look at me. I need to make eye contact with you. And from that point, because you stepped into the space but had to be bigger than I imagine what a dude would have been, you owned that. You owned that space. You got your sound check done. And I giggled my little ass off and was like, I fucking love this woman. <laughs> Yay for mics I mean that are hot. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that the live stream was still going is is pretty rough. <laughs> Soundcheck's not so, supposed to be streamed across the world. Um, I mean, but, luckily, no secrets were told. 
<laughs> I mean, what was so what was happening on stage though was that Brandy, who I play for and who I'm musical director for, her, she didn't have anything in her monitor. Like she didn't have any guitar or voice. And someone on the other side Ooh. of the stage was saying to me, "Are we ready to go?" And I was like, "No, we're not ready to go because we can't fucking hear anything." Like. I can't let Brandy walk out on stage to no sound. Like, this is not... And the, the thing is, this actually, as much as that was a kind of funny story, and now that kind of thing just happens without... I never, I wouldn't have thought about it again if you hadn't have said it to me afterwards. But it does actually speak to my first experience of coping with imposter syndrome, is that as a mm. young bass player, the way that I dealt with feeling inferior and feeling unwelcome was... Burying my femininity and bringing as much masculine energy as I could. Where I would walk yeah. into a gig or a jam session and I would feel like I had, I was, I came out swinging. Like, you will not put me in my place. I deserve to be here and I'm going to prove to you why not only can I play as well as you, but probably better than you, motherfucker. Like, that was the kind of energy I brought. And that is like not healthy. It's not a good way to, to, to live <laughs> with that kind of intensity, especially when you're young. And it took me a really long time to unlearn that. So uh, as much as the, you know, yes, now I'm, I'm good at stepping into like, hey, dude, that I can't see because I'm blinded by spotlights. Like you need to listen to me because I have an important, and I'm not just like trying to get your attention because you're ignoring me. It's not like a power trip. It's like, I have an important job to do up here, which is make this shit sound good, and you are preventing me from doing it, and I need to connect you, you to the situation so I can make it right. But I also think that having to come out and kind of, like, guns blazing, mm -hmm. it shouldn't mm -hmm. be the only way. No, no. And I'm, that's a very good point to make is that throughout our lifetimes, like, when you asked, what is, what is something that you feel like you experience imposter syndrome with? I'm like, just being alive, like, breathing. <laughs> But the way that, to your point, that we have to cope or to change um, who we are, to change how loud we are, our softness, um, that, that external shell, I'd say for my entire life, and this is going back to my first memories. Um, we grew up in a very sporty household. My dad was a, a professional baseball player, and kind of our measure for success, even at home, was our physical prowess. So how quick we could run, how hard we could throw a ball, if we could catch a pop fly, you know, how quickly we could learn to, to nail a three-pointer at every time we let loose a basketball, those kinds of things. That was a very male space. Even though girls played sports, my lens of life was through the lens of watching men play, of being strong like a man and having to go through the world in a very physical sense um, which still shapes the way that I see myself and almost pathologize myself um, as I move through the world as a 41-year-old woman. Like, you know me. Like, if I miss five days of exercise, I go nuts. And it's not because my body's going mental. It's because my brain starts to tell me things like, you're not going to be strong. How are you going to look in, you know, in a C-suite? What are you going to do if, oh, my God, you're not perfectly put together, says the woman in a ball cap and a flannel shirt right now. <laughs> um, but, you know, my, my earliest memories are of trying to fit in with the boys and trying to figure out how um, I could maintain even just a tiny bit of myself. And I think for a lot of us coming into a beautiful season of our life, we're starting to go, oh, shit. We have, we have cooled and calmed down so much of our gentility or of our artistry in business settings around um, 
tables, especially in, in kind of board situations, I can remember many, many times thinking through, and not many times, every time, thinking through exactly the clothes I was going to wear, who the people were going to be in the room, especially if it was going to be all men, and then how tall these men were and what the power dynamics of the room were going to be. Because if there were men, um, here's a secret, that were 5'10 or shorter who were really fucking misogynistic or who were going to piss me off, I would always put on heels so that I'd be six foot two or three. And I would walk into that room and purposefully take up more space and be a bullshier, quote unquote, bitchier woman than I had to be or I wanted to be. And I think when you put on that persona as well, like you said, that, 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 you know, butt kicking bass player, um, and overarching, then you feel even more of that, um, complex emotion of being an imposter because you're not only in the room thinking, do I belong in this room? Which, you know, hot take. Yes. If you're in the room, you belong there. Um, but I'm trying to be somebody else while I'm struggling with this in my head. So I deal with it all the time. When I did TV for the first time with The Apprentice, I can remember walking into the room and my little curious brain was like, wow, how does TV work? How are we going to make this? How does this differ from um, an advertising shoot? How does this differ from a campaign project to sitting in front of these lights going, oh shit, I, this isn't me. I don't belong here. And then just go and cast. Calm down. You're cool. People want to be entertained. Maybe we just all need to be the gladiator. <laughs> Are you not entertained? <laughs> I mean, yeah, and, and I, again, segue queen over here. This, again, leads us perfectly into um, another point from the piece. And I'm not going to read a ton of quotes from it because I do think people need to go read it for themselves. But this confidence that we're talking about, that for us manifested in this need to kind of come out swinging and to make ourselves mm -hmm. bigger and more mm -hmm. confident than we actually even felt in an effort to just survive. So this is what this, this the piece says. They say, we often falsely equate confidence, most often the type demonstrated by white male leaders with competence mm -hmm. and leadership. Employees mm -hmm. who can't or won't conform to male biased social styles are told that they have imposter syndrome. So if you don't, and then this is end quote, if you don't conform to a model that is purely based on white male confidence, then you are told that you have imposter syndrome. And it's become this buzzword. It's become this movement, right? Yeah. Where like there's books and courses and coaching programs all designed to help women shed this like disability that we've, that mm. we have. And the point yeah. of this piece and the thing that the thing that really hit me the, the most with this, with reading it and hearing the podcast with Brene, is this, and this is another quote, what's less explored is why imposter syndrome exists in the first place and what role mm -hmm. workplace systems play in fostering and exacerbating it in women because it puts the blame on individuals without accounting for the historical and cultural context that are foundational to how it manifests. So instead of, in quote, sorry, I feel like I need to make it clear that that's the end of that quote. Um, so the thing that, the, and this is actually, this is the one sentence that blew my mind, that they said the system isn't broken. It's mm -hmm. working exactly as it was designed. And that is like, whoo, because I think mm -hmm. about that in the music industry. Like you look at just some more statistics just came out today with the Grammys about statistics yeah. about women who are up for Grammys and it's actually got worse since last year. There were men who pledged to work with more women producers and then just didn't. Like 
The system isn't broken. It's designed to work like this for men. And that And it's and designed for the people who are marginalized to uphold it. This is why right. consumerism and capitalism and and all of these things continue under, you know, patriarchal and colonial systems because the systems are made to keep the the middle class, the lower class, even the words I just use. Like there are no classes of people, there are just humans, right? We have to unpack all that shit because it's working just as it should. I tell my wife this all the time, and I know you know her pretty well, so you can just picture her eyes rolling and maybe just turning down the volume on me. But I talk about it all the time about going to work and how as white women, I think it's important too for you and I to point out right now, we are seeing this through the lens of being white women who are, uh, we're privileged in, in where we were born, we're safe, our education has been superb. We understand the nomenclature and the language of privilege and power. Privilege and power being white male at the top and then white women assimilating to that. But I, th I talk about it all the time about like how we go to work in these offices and it's really just keeping us in a system that's broken and we are a part of it. Well, we have to pay our mortgage. Why do mortgages exist, man? Everything's made up. Like <laughs> all of these, like it's all made up to keep us in line so the people in power continue to keep that power. And this mm. is, this is, and it's all tapped into this idea of imposter syndrome. One of the things that I loved about uh, this podcast and the piece was that Brene and her guests kept going back to healthy self-doubt is normal. We pathologize it by giving the name, a, giving it the name of a syndrome, which then, so my 4am brain was thinking a lot about like how one line can change your life, but it didn't understand pathologizing. So I went and looked up pathology and pathology was defined as regarding or treating something as psychologically abnormal and get this this is the sentence to explain pathology most of the older theories of psychology pathologize same-sex attraction so then there I was I was like oh great not only <laughs> not only am I a pastor over here but in the fucking dictionary they're oh, talking man. about the gays dude <laughs> dude can they find another dude <laughs> <laughs> Dude, can't we? <laughs> I mean, the, the thing, the thing with this is that I, I, I think that if we can conclusively say that we agree that imposter syndrome was potentially a useful term, it is no longer right. Like it's telling mm. people that they have imposter syndrome puts the onus on them to fix it. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if we can agree that what that, that they're not broken, that the system needs to be changed, I think it's also worth saying that. When you start to realize that the system that you are operating in isn't working, you don't, you might not be the person that has it in you to fight. Like not everyone has to be the fighter, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. it takes getting older. Sometimes it takes being in a position of privilege where the repercussions mm -hmm. are less. Maybe you, if you are fighting this, that it's going to create more distress in your life than you can cope with. So I think mm -hmm. you have a few options, you know, you can fight, which for me feels like the right thing right now that I want to, I want to start having more conversations around the music business about the fact that the music business is set up by men to support men. It's a system where musicians don't make any money and they have fucking tons of mental health issues. Like nothing about that system makes sense to me anymore. So the options are either work to fix the system or start your own, you know, either work mm -hmm. to, to, 
get into those jobs and those labels and those those high up executive music industry roles and change it or it's walk away and start your own mm. thing and i think what is also ironic about sometimes when they're talking about imposter syndrome in corporate environments they, the in in the podcast interview specifically they were talking about how often showing up authentically as your whole self when oh. you are in an environment that isn't set up to cope with you, you will be told that you you are wrong, you're too loud, you're too much, you're too this, you're too that. Ironically, when you show up as your whole self authentically in terms of something like building an audience, it's a superpower. It's everything you yeah. need. So maybe yeah. the best move for some people out there is going to be to step away from the system and use the authenticity and the empathy and the sensitivity and some of the things that in certain environments, whether it's corporate or, or otherwise, you may be ma being made to feel are inadequacies or weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Those things are goddamn superpowers when it comes to connecting with other humans. So I, I think my point is, and you might have a way to, to, to add something to this that I can't articulate, but there isn't one course of action from realizing what's going on, but realizing mm -mm. that imposter syndrome is a shitty term that's been used to tell women that they are broken. Once you fully accept that there are a few different ways you can move forward and you have to find what works for you. That's right. That's right. Well, I think it's also important to, to learn the history of certain things. Just like, um, I talk with my friend, Holly G, our friend, Holly from the Black Opry a lot. One thing that Holly's done really well with the Black Opry is she has learned the history. She's understood. We talked about this with Alice Soper and, um, sports women and understanding who came before them. When the thing that really got me and was not surprising, like this broke my heart that it was 0% surprising, was that 1978 study on the quote unquote imposter phenomenon was only including women. Like, of course we were gonna focus on ourselves and think it was our fault. All, every single executive woman I have ever coached or worked through or um, built brands with has always questioned who they are and why they do things and if they're allowed to be important, no matter how they uh, show on the outside their confidence. So, the, and that's because we have been focused on it's our fault and not surely it's, it's what surrounds us. It's the systematic world that we're in, in a broken system. Um, I think you're completely right to assimilate with the existing structures of power is to um, keep it going, it's to perpetuate it. Um, I think there are times where there are bridge gaps between let's say, you know, grassroots change and evolution and what exists, um, where people work within the system, but also without the system to break it and change it and make it more equitable. We need people um, on I both sides of that, right? You need people on need both people sides of, of that fight. Which is why I stayed in corporate so long, which is why I knew I could make more change at a boardroom table and apportion more budget to things that mattered in, instead of just buy, 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 by making decisions around, you know, sustainability and different initiatives for women and girls. However, there came a point where I went, I'm at the table. I'm very passionate about this. I have a lot of power to make things happen and I have zero power to make things change. And at this point, it was where I started to believe the fuck it all. It's made up. 
we now need to make things up. And that doesn't mean, like in the music industry, that doesn't mean you go and you tear down all the labels. But it might mean for an independent artist that you go, actually, I don't need a label right now. I can self-publish. I can teach myself how to get my art out there. I can build a really functionally beautiful community of 1,000, 50,000 people who are going to buy my music, who are going to come see me play, and that will sustain me. Um, you know, there, there are ways to do that. We can break things simply by doing them differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. And, and we I can also get pissed off by stats like you shared <laughs> with me yesterday around the Grammys. And we knew that was going to happen, right? Oh, my yeah. gosh, women need a voice. Let's work with women in 2019. Oh, 2020, 2021, 2022, gone. Gone burgers. Mm-hmm back down. Well, and I've been thinking about that again this morning. Like it's because I think that the best well-meaning men, and I, and I should have said this at the very beginning, but like speaking in these very binary terms is, is Mm. yes, not always right. You know, like it's, I don't know how to, I guess I don't really know how to differentiate between what I see as being largely what happens with men in the industry and largely what happens with women. I know that there is there's a, it's not a hard and fast line between that, but mm, mm. Um, there are there are men in the industry, really well-meaning men, who do want to make this better and mm-hmm. want to to mm-hmm. fight for change. The thing is, they don't have the same skin in the game. You know, if they mm-hmm. if they create change, best case scenario, their life doesn't change at all. Worst case scenario, they have to now share a slice of a pie that they worked really hard for. So I can see why. Not that they don't. It's, it's the ones an that infinite don't give a, pie. No, but it's you know what I mean. Like pie. in terms of in terms yeah. of like producer jobs specifically, like work with more female producers. Okay, so male yeah. producers out there are going to be like there is a, a a finite amount of jobs out there in this role in this year in this town, and <clears throat> if I encourage women. I might lose some of that work. And I don't think that that means, like, therefore they should go, I'm not going to encourage women. But I can see why even the most, the people with the best of intentions, they they forget about it because they don't have the same, they, they can't kind of, can't possibly have the same fire under them that women do. And that's why I think that the, the I, I, start, I get bogged down by these statistics and I get a bit depressed about it sometimes. But I mm. also think that it's not, the point of this is not to have another tirade against inequality in the music industry for me. Or in or m- most industries, just life. Uh, yeah. the, the point is a rallying cry to women to look after each other and support each other and lift each other up in really practical ways. So not just like like a tweet or you know mm-hmm. forward an article. Like you know hire each other and build like like Brandy Carlisle's Girls Just Want a Weekend is such a good example of a woman mm-hmm. who's out there building something magnificent that primarily employs not only like yeah you know yeah yeah women but like actually employs them and puts them on stages mm-hmm. and pays mm-hmm. them and furthers their career in a really tangible way you know you've got to buy each other's albums and share each other's posts and i think the people that are going to care the most are always going to be the ones impacted by it that's mm-hmm. not to say that there aren't people out there you know male or otherwise that that aren't also supportive but if women aren't fighting for this it is mm-hmm. not going to change which is also a part of of this a kind of an off spurt or it's all together actually of this is that idea that women need to compete with each other i mm. fucking loathe the mean girl and the little clique ways that that we are taught to act and interact into the cool girl clubs fuck that noise i will i will invite 
anybody in under these arms and in these, you know, and hug and embrace and do all of the things you just said if she needs help because we need to help each other. There is that pie that that potential producer is afraid of, somebody getting a bite of, that is an infinite pie. I'm going to tell you, if, if that man who's worried about losing his job in his town just looks up and around, there will be plenty of jobs for him at all times if he's any fucking good. But if he shares yeah. with a woman and then that woman shares with another woman, they will always, because this is what we are taught to do, include him too. Like, mm. power is infinite, love is infinite. Jobs are not, I get that. But maybe that dude can also sit the fuck down for a minute and go, how am I going to evolve this? Like, what is the yeah. actual action? Instead of me hoarding this job or holding on to it, you can't just be an ally with words anymore. I think that's where I'm mm -hmm. going with all of this, especially with the fact that imposter syndrome, it's such a sham. Like, it is, it is, so, it is so not on us to hold the space. And you and I, again, we should point out, we are white women talking about this. You can hear my mm -hmm. voice, how passionate I am. I think about quite often when I was at um, Air New Zealand, I had a very diverse team. We were all women, but I had two women of um, Indian background. I had a woman of Chinese background and there was me and then our beloved Clary. And <laughs> I can remember when, um, we moved on. One of the girls that um, had been working for me, who is still like family all these years later, had said, Cass, I've been applying for jobs at, you know, four or five different corporations. I've got no calls back, none. And on paper, she was the best candidate bar none. So I was like, well, let's try a little thing, shall we? And put my name on your CV. Dan, I guarantee you she got every single call back after that because there was a white name on that CV. And that for me solidified that I can be passionate about things as a woman because I walk into rooms and especially now as a gay woman and being unfuckable in a media industry where men want to, you know, they want to try their, their way. And absolutely, they just look at me now and they go, Ugh. <laughs> That was the thing where this woman I love, who I see as a sister and as family, was being impacted by her name on a piece of paper, let alone how she walks through the world and presents. And she, bar none, the best candidate. Um, mm. She ended up getting a job, but she struggled every single time since um, when she's progressed in her career because her name doesn't sound white. So it's so important yeah. to remember that what we feel right now um, not that there's any, you can't compare um, pain and suffering and all of these things, but you can. It's, it's a lot more equitable for us because the default for white or for women is white women. So I just want to point mm -hmm. that out too. Um, yeah, that's so important. We, we understand the depth of our not knowing and our non-understanding mm -hmm. of all of this too. Yeah. Man, it's, it's such an important conversation. And I think, you know, like with this podcast, I hope that people share these episodes with people that might find them interesting when, when, when they do, right? Like I'm, that's not a thing I want to really push, but this particular episode, I just want, I want women everywhere to, to hear this and to read the article and listen to the, to the podcast with Brene. And it's just, it's time to let go of this term that doesn't serve us mm. and start doing whatever we can to, to change and to break down and replace these systems with systems that actually support us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I wrote down um, four things 
I usually do three, but I wrote four things that I think specifically, and this, this is for creative industries, but can be extrapolated out to everybody. Four things we can do starting right now. I think the first thing, which might be the hardest, is to normalize empathy. So actually sitting down and listening to our sisters and our non-binary whanau when they talk to us and they tell us what's going on and then figuring out how we can help. Um, always being that bridge. If we can, if we can network, build those networks, share, 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 give it away, give it away. So normalize empathy. Two, one of the biggest things that I do, especially when I bring people on for projects uh, to work with me is um, create these spaces of belonging. So I will never tell someone, bring your whole self to work, fuck that noise. I don't even bring my whole self to home sometimes because I don't know what that means. Um, but I try to create spaces of belonging where you can be who you need to be in that moment to do your best work and know that you're gonna be loved and supported. So normalize empathy, spaces of belonging. Bring your full self is just fucking words. So the third is interrogate words. Like I know I wrote a whole piece, so like hug your haters, take the high road. It's all bullshit, it's made up. You gotta do what's best for you to feel safe and break down this stuff. And then the fourth one, you ready for this one? Mm -hmm. Yep. And I know this is easy for me to say because I'm a bullshy white woman. It's be a threat. Like, it's okay. My biggest fear, um, even when I had my first anxiety attack earlier, well, l last year in Nashville, I was like, I'm afraid I'm a threat. Be a fucking threat. It's mm. okay. It's okay. Because as long as you're being true to who you are, people will support you and love you. That's it. That's me. Soapbox. <laughs> well, it's true. And I think the be, be a threat is like, Change doesn't happen through asking politely, mm. you know? Mm. And being a threat doesn't have to shout. You know, you, mm. if you are more introverted, you're better with words on paper. If, you, if being a threat means showing up and, and being the bass player and going like, no, have you not seen a woman bass player? And then, boof, walk, dropping the mic, not literally, they're expensive, and walking away. <laughs> um, you know, those kinds of things. We, confidence and showing up don't look the same for all of us. I think that's an important mm -hmm. thing to say too. Um, we'll Absolutely. have the loud shouties and we'll have the quiets working in the background and it takes all of us. It does, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I would highly recommend people go read this this piece because it was really great. Um, there's a follow-up uh, piece as well that's about implementing it in a corporate environment. That's really interesting as well. And the, and the podcast with Brene, always great, <laughs> incredible conversation. Um, but I'm, yeah, today was great. I'm really glad to be talking about this because I think it's incredibly important. So, so thank you, Cassie. These girls are on fire. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, we, just to say, we will link all of these things to you in the show notes. So don't worry about going and Googling them. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe to the podcast and share with your friends. Every little bit helps us while we build this community. Aid and Abet is produced by Vanessa McGowan and Cassie Roma with music by Tattletale Saints. Aid and Abet kindness, love, empowerment, wahine, friendship, music, storytelling, Aid and Abet. Change. Change.